0: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: So I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I have no frickin' idea what gaslighting is.
2: I don't know what it is. Okay, thank you. Thank you for your unpopular confession. I don't know what it is either. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the Gaslighting and Guesswork Edition. I'm Shane Harris of The Daily Beast. I engage in guesswork all the time about gaslighting.
1: And, and particularly this week.
2: Oh, this week? Slow News Week, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Not yeah. much going on?
0: Nah. Not no.
2: like
1: not like we had a vice presidential debate or anything.
2: You know, or like, you know, leaks and major investigations and, you that, know.
0: That wasn't a debate, Ben. <laughs> Technically,
2: well, they were sitting down, by the way. Did you notice that Sarah Palin tweeted that she was like with the only vice presidential debate where you had to stand up in like the past four or five cycles? And she she tweeted a picture of the the red high heel stilettos that she was standing in. I have to admit, I had like a moment of like, good for you, Sarah <laughs> good Palin. Good for you, Sarah
3: Palin. <laughs> yeah, <that'd be laughs> You're the only one to stand on these
2: she, damn shoes. Yeah. She
0: had to do it just like the men except backwards and in high heels. Yeah. So for and the and men they to sit down. Sit. Yeah. I actually – I hated that format because – Neither of them was looking right at the camera and neither could they even look at each other. It was very confusing.
1: I was just really disappointed in Donald Trump for not tweeting something completely insulting about the moderator. I think he has got standards to live up to. And this is a Latino yeah. woman. Uh, and, you know, this is was an opportunity that Donald Trump passed up
3: you don't think that there was like a staffer sitting in the room with like a tranquilizer gun just there were like five
2: staffers in the room with him, yeah. with
3: him actually uh, oh yeah Which yeah apparently according to a spokesperson
2: i mean i'm just wondering if they were looking at him tweeting being like
3: well look nothing of substance was said as far as i can tell through the entire debate it was what 80 percent cross talking over each other right mike pence making things up and not at
0: all not a no. no, no, because we don't have talking points on this podcast. Yeah,
2: and we don't make things up for the most part.
0: <laughs> for the, <laughs> for the, for the, the most, most part. part.
2: <laughs> well, this week, we don't have to make up anything because this is just one of these uh, almost too crazy to believe kind of weeks. Uh, but we're here, of course, in the studio with my friends Tamara Kaufman, Wittes, Ben us, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, guys. Hey. hey. Uh, this week on the podcast, the vice presidential candidates, of course, faced off in their first and only debate before Election Day. Only get to see them once. What a shame! What a shame! Uh, senators have buyer's remorse over a law that lets families of nine eleven victims sue Saudi Arabia.
0: Isn't that voters' remorse? Is
2: it voters' remorse? Yeah, I think it's I think it's veto override remorse. Yeah. We're going to get to that. It's sellers too. You
1: know? yeah, <laughs> yeah.
2: Nobody's happy, but well, some people are happy about this. We'll talk about it. Uh, and can the NSA keep its own secrets after this week? I'm starting to wonder. Um, yeah, let's 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 dive into the debate. Uh, I'm going to confess I didn't watch it. I did. I'm not going to pretend that I did. I watched
0: every interrupty minute, and I think as far as national security is concerned, my conclusion is that the only national security issues in this campaign in which, uh, debate moderators seem to have any interest are immigration and ISIS.
1: And Russia. Oh, yeah. There were a lot of questions about Russia.
0: Yeah, and Russia, but not what to do about Russia. Or no, ISIS it's just like who's in the tank for Russia. Yeah,
2: and didn't Mike Pence like? I mean, he did, was He the, tried to flip that on yeah.
1: Cain um, because you know Hillary once uh, uh, supported the idea of a reset and considered it a high priority. So she is apparently responsible for everything Vladimir Putin has done. Uh, since, um, and it, actually, you know, in the gaslighting. That's some jujitsu.
2: That's some almost Putin esque
1: No, no, no.
0: It's like, it's like six year old jujitsu. I know you are, but what am I?
1: Yeah. There was a lot of I know you are, but what am I? Or even no, I'm, no, you're not, but I am. Or no, I'm not, but you are. <laughs> but what
3: is remarkable is there was almost no substantive defense of Donald Trump. So, you know, Pence offered a lot of positions that one might point out are contrary to those of his running mates, including um, uh, being uh, very clear that he is not supportive of Russia, does not... Um...
0: More than that, arguing that the United States should be willing to carry out airstrikes to push back on Russia in and Syria.
1: And, Would... and, and I, I actually loved Mike Pence's strategy. Uh, I think it was... it was. Uh, simply to deny everything inconvenient in everything his boss has ever said so uh he supports airstrikes and intervention in syria to protect syrian civilians provided they don't end up in indiana uh yeah. it turns out that donald trump his takes a hard line on on vladimir putin uh he uh uh, has a very reasonable immigration policy based on enforcement first and sort of solving everything, but he's never said. Oh, and that...
0: community policing. Yes.
1: <laughs> um, and I, I actually think this is something we all should, uh, for example, lawfare has a lot we could learn from this. Uh, when people criticize our articles, we should simply deny that they ever appeared or that they said what people said they said. We'd not take them down or anything, just Deny that it didn't happen. It just didn't happen. Well, if think... somebody writes, sends a correction, says Shane, you got that fact wrong. Shane, instead of running a correction, Shane
0: should simply say, "I never said that." <laughs>
2: um, I think that could s- solve a lot of
1: problems. Just but it, but
0: wide I application for this. What was actually going on there is something worth focusing on for at least a minute, which is that Mike Pence is not running as Donald Trump's vice presidential candidate. Mike Pence is running an entirely separate campaign with an entirely different platform. And, you know, he may have said that Trump agrees with him, but actually, I don't think he cares very much. He was interested in putting out his own views on these issues. And it just made made evident to me that he's bizarrely hitched his coattails to this disgusting candidate um, merely to f- further his own future political process. Mike Pence, 2020. Yeah. Right.
3: I mean, there's something incredibly sort of craven about it. Um, I mean, I guess I don't know what's <laughs> as opposed to
0: everybody else who's hitched their wagon to Donald well, Trump. The, like,
3: I don't know what's worse, right? Actually agreeing with Donald Trump and being his running mate because you think he's great or having this like, you know, completely sort of cynical, you don't agree with the man at all, but you're going to use and you're going to hitch a star to it.
1: But, it. but but here's the thing is, it's not just hitching your star to And it's not just cynically tying yourself to it. It's the active embrace of it on bases other than it being what it is. And, you know, so it would be one thing if like, you know, Rudy Giuliani or Chris Christie, Pence were making some sort of compromise with Trump's position. He's just lying about what the positions are. And I thought he did a remarkably good job at that, actually. So, at sort of pretending that he was Yeah, it was
0: incredibly sincere lying and incredibly consistent. And and so it actually may have worked for a certain segment of people. But at the end of the day, it's hard for me to imagine that anyone watching that debate, if indeed anyone watched the whole thing other than me... Yeah. Um, you know, that it changed a single mind. But
3: this is the thing. It, maybe it worked for, for the course of the debate while he was standing on that stage, but there have to already be videos being sort of compiled right now of oh, Mike the Pence Clinton saying something Clinton and then thing? Donald Trump saying something. I mean, it doesn't, sort that's of exactly what the media. Clinton campaign
0: released this morning. Like they probably had it cut and in the bag before the end of the day. Ready night.
3: to
1: go. Well, so. so. Right. And then the question becomes, can you win the debate and lose the aftermath of it so badly that it's actually a sort of net negative? Um, and I don't, I don't know the answer to that, but I was, I was actually surprised by the sort of flamboyance of the maneuver and, you know, um, to, it was quite, You know, brazen, and I don't think it's craven, actually. I, I think it's, I think it's kind of ballsy. It's just, I'm, I'm gonna go (laughs) up there. Tomato, tomato. Yeah. I'm gonna go up there and defend energetically a presidential candidate who doesn't exist. Um, and I'm (laughs) going to attack on national security grounds. The other side based on a series of positions that the presidential candidate for whom I'm the vice president doesn't ha- hold. And I, I thought, I thought that was like, I, I had thought through many of possible Pence strategies. I never considered that one. Okay. And I think it's, I think it's actually an impressive maneuver, um, for which I think they will probably pay no price because, uh, Whatever, however ridiculous Pence made himself in fact, he did it fairly eloquently and, and with, as, as Tamara says, an air of real sincerity. And by the way, he is so much less ridiculous than his boss that the marginal ridiculousness of the exercise is very minor. And so I think, I think it actually Um, Probably did the campaign a net positive as, as sorry as I am to admit that.
3: But let it be noted, the less ridiculous person on the ticket has signed a piece of legislation requiring women to hold funerals for their miscarriages. Yes. So let's let's not leave that. We're grading on a curve here. <laughs> <And> Nobody's <laughs> really brought up the religious
0: freedom laws in
2: Indiana and all these things. Yeah, that I, thought- I,
0: I actually, I mean, I thought that religious faith question at the end was in some ways the most revealing of the whole evening because that was one on which both of them have deeply held and rather different perspectives in terms of of church and state. But I, I, you know. I guess I held out a hope, perhaps it was foolish, that because this was a vice presidential debate and because these are both men of substance in different ways, um, that there would be more policy content in this discussion and specifically on national security. Pence served on House Foreign Affairs. Kane served on Senate Foreign Relations. And yet, um, it was, it, it was about as policy light as one could be. And, you know, even where there were opportunities for one of them to, uh, score points on the other with a substantive position, um, that they either, in Pence's case, espoused a position that they, that the campaign does not in fact hold, or in Kane's case, kept taking it back to Trump's tax returns instead of actually talking about the issues at stake. And so, you know, once again, it's like a policy-free zone, this campaign. And,
1: and, and, and Kane's, uh, maneuver in that regard. I say this as somebody who there there's nobody in American public life I respect more than Tim Kaine. But that maneuver—that's
0: quite a statement.
1: That that maneuver was a bad maneuver because there. Whatever Trump's tax returns may signify, they do not have national security implications. They're about—is this a crude nasty? I disagree. What what country? I think
3: if Donald Trump's tax returns reveal that he is seriously indebted to uh, individuals in foreign countries and and in, and in China and in Russia. That is a, a piece of information that is relevant to the national security. Oh, oh,
1: okay, okay. So, uh, so I agree that there are things that could theoretically be on the tax return that would, if they were have national security implications. But nothing that I know about that New York Times story, um, uh, I, I mean, I can, yes, you, you're right. We can spin out hypotheticals. But basically when when Kane is trying to link the tax return to a set of national security conversations, what he's really doing is saying, by the way, remember his tax returns. He hasn't released his tax returns. There was this big New York Times story about his tax returns and he's trying to connect everything to that. And I think that's a cheap trick. Because actually there are some really big Trump vulnerabilities on national security issues like the Vladimir Putin relationship, like the fact that he's actively encouraged hacking of the DNC, like the fact that he uh, doesn't have the remotest understanding of, uh, America's national, natural alliances, like the fact that he wants to commit war crimes and promises to do. I mean, the least interesting thing about Trump from a national security perspective is What may be on his tax return that we don't know if it is. And I just think every time Kane tried to turn a national security conversation about Trump into an issue of his tax return, he's missing an opportunity to talk about some really fat, meaty issues.
0: Ben, Trump. Trump never said he wanted to torture people, and and he doesn't have a friendly relationship with Vladimir Putin. I mean, I, I don't know where you're getting this stuff. In, I
1: never but, said that, so, right. so, so I, don't, I don't know really <laughs> But, what,
0: what but <laughs> seriously, I, I, I mean, I, I think you're right that those are real issues with real national security implications. Susan, I think you're right that the tax returns could, in theory, be quite revealing. She never
1: said
2: that. <laughs>
0: in that regard. But I am not persuaded that American voters actually care about that stuff, although I I care deeply. I know the foreign policy establishment here in Washington cares deeply and is very concerned, but uh, it doesn't seem to be moving a lot of votes, and and the tax return story does.
2: Well, something I never said we were going to talk about, which we're going to talk about now, uh, is JASTA. What? (laughs) (laughs) JASTA sounds like a knockoff of Shasta, but it's not. It's the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism. It always there.
1: reminds me of the Journal of the American Medical Association. Oh, JAMA, JAMA,
2: JAMA, JAMA. JAMA. <laughs> JAMA sounds I was going like
0: to call it Jatsa.
2: Yeah, because of like the Jetsons. Like,
3: yeah, George Jetson. Although I heard a
2: friend of mine call recently on a podcast Josta, and I was like, No, 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 no it's no, Jasta. No that's that's yeah. wrong. Uh, so Jasta.
3: Speaking yeah. of things people wish they could. Take back. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Ding. (laughs) Wouldn't it be
0: great if the Senate could just say, we never passed that? Yeah. (laughs) Let me me understand if I get the
3: order of events correct.
2: Yeah, yeah. Give us the the loadout on the JASTA and and how we've arrived at this moment where, yeah, we'd like to do a a do-over in the Senate.
3: So, President Obama – so, Congress introduces this legislation to – uh, eliminate state sovereign immunity. I'm looking at Ben for the thumbs up on the legal uh, analysis against uh, specifically Saudi Arabia for um, uh, uh, allegedly uh, supporting the 9-11 attacks to allow uh, 9-11 victims and, and survivors to, um, to sue Saudi Arabia. President Obama says, that bill's a really bad idea. Don't pass that bill. And Congress passes the bill. And then President Obama says, all right, the bill's still a really bad idea. And so he vetoes the bill. Then Congress says, we're going to override it. Obama says, no, seriously, you don't want to override. You you do not want this bill to become law. And then Congress overrides and, uh, and overrides the veto. Then Mitch McConnell, speaking of balls, gets up and says, clearly, Obama failed to communicate the negative consequences of this legislation to Congress. And therefore, it was his fault that they passed a bad bill.
1: So that is an accurate summary of the history of events, but it starts in the middle. Okay. And I think it's actually – nobody does this, but it's really important to understand the prehistory of JASTA, which is that uh, it starts – so this goes back to my days at the Washington Post editorial page when we were the sort of the only editorial page in the country that opposed these legislative maneuvers. But – there has been a group of plaintiffs' lawyers who have had cap, uh, Congress wrapped around their finger on issues of uh, suing terrorist-sponsoring nations uh, for more than a decade now. And it was initially directed at Iran and Cuba. Uh, Cuba over the brothers to the rescue, downing of the of that plane, and Iran over various acts by Hamas and uh, Islamic Jihad, and the initial idea was that uh, you had these. Uh, there's a, a an exception to the foreign sovereign immunities doctrine for countries on the terrorist sponsorship list for the acts of terror that they sponsor. And the trouble is then the countries, Cuba and or Iran, don't show up to defend themselves. So you get these, on behalf of quite sympathetic victims, outrageous default judgments for hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, And uh, some of them, by the way, based on facts that are alleged but not proven and may not even be true. And then, of course, the question is, how do you satisfy the judgments? And in a series of of laws that Congress passed, they made it easier and easier and easier to attach major foreign frozen assets, both of the Cubans and the Iranians, in order to satisfy these judgments. Every single one of these was passed over the objection of the executive branch, probably starting in the Clinton administration. I'd have to go back, but in, in, certainly through, through the entire Bush administration. And at every moment, the plaintiff's lawyers had bi- a bipartisan majority of Congress wrapped around their fingers. And it's never been about victims. It's always been about money. And it's been about getting the money of these countries, some of which is frozen in significant part in the United States. And, um, and at every step of the way, the plaintiff's lawyers have been quite effective, not just with Congress, but also with the press at, um, you know, at creating a sort of sympathetic environment for it. And so this is a big win for, it because not only have they gotten access to frozen assets from these other countries. Now, But they've now expanded the list of countries that you can theoretically go after, in, ter- in, in particular to one or more than one that are not on the terrorist uh, sponsoring list and that have enormous, enormous amounts of assets in the United States. And once again, it's done over the objection of the executive branch, which is a, a bipartisan position of the executive branch in in, in both uh, and it's done with a bipartisan, stunning majority of Congress. And the reason is, quite simply, uh, the relationship between these plaintiffs, lawyers, and their firms,
2: and members of Congress.
0: Well, okay. So I think it, it's a useful history. I'm going to have
2: to give the other side's defense, even though I'm not taking a position, but go ahead.
0: No, no, it's a useful history. <laughs> but I also think that, to a certain extent, That history, while providing good context, doesn't explain what's really notable about the passage of this bill and its primary impact, which is on the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia. Because, as you noted, Ben, the big difference here is that the previous um, countries targeted were adversaries. They were countries on the state sponsors of terrorism list. They were countries with whom we had very difficult or no relations, Um, countries whose assets were frozen or subject to other kinds of liens here in the United States. Saudi Arabia is an entirely different story. We have a lot of U.S. corporations with investments and contracts in Saudi Arabia, a lot of Saudis um, and Americans traveling back and forth, a very multifaceted security, defense and intelligence partnership. Uh, a very multifaceted bilateral relationship. and so um, it it is uh, legislation that has implications for foreign policy well beyond the previous cases here. And I think that you know part of the challenge, as you noted in these in these other cases, there have been facts that haven't been proven. In the in the in the 9/11 case, which is the case at issue um, that drove this legislation forward, the idea that victims of the 9/11 attacks should be able to sue the Saudi government, um, we actually have had significant bipartisan independent investigations of the Saudi role in 9/11 that has concluded that the Saudi government did not play a role in sponsoring Al Qaeda's plot to attack the United States in sponsoring the individuals who were perpetrators of that attack, we have the 9-11 commission itself, and then we have the um, FBI report that came uh, 10 years later. And and finally, as we've discussed on the show before, we had at long last the declassification of those final pages from the 9-11 report, which basically reinforce everything we already knew. And so- this is a case where the facts are actually pretty clear and Congress has had those facts. And so passing this legislation in the face of those facts and making Saudi Arabia vulnerable to, to lawsuits here and thereby making the United States vulnerable to similar lawsuits in other places is really it, it is um, flying in the face of the factual record and creating problems that that we're attempting to solve problems that don't exist. And I, I just find it kind of a shocking manifestation of where Congress is these days, that in, in a year when it could hardly pass anything at all, like not even regular appropriations bills, it managed to not just pass this, but pass it over a presidential veto.
2: Can so, we, but hold on. Let's also, I mean, the 9-11 victims' family members are not <clears throat> in this for money. They are not persuaded that the government has actually thoroughly investigated all the connections of the 9-11 attacks. I mean we can argue whether or not they should have their day in court. We can – certainly the sovereign immunity implications of this are massive. But I mean just to push back on what you were saying, Ben, I, mean, I don't think – I mean the victim's families who I've talked to, they're not in this for money. And this may be the case that the trial lawyers have helped push this through Congress, but for them, this is about, this is about justice, which they believe they have not received from their government.
1: Yeah. So to be clear, I'm not talking about the victims' families here any more than I'm talking about Alicia Flato's, uh, family. Uh, she was one of the people killed in a, uh, in a, in one of the, uh, Hamas or Islamic Jihad attacks that, that, uh, iran's assets got tapped to satisfy the judgment in i'm not talking about the victims' families i'm talking about uh, a pattern of behavior on the part of a of of plaintiffs law firms uh, in which uh, they have sought over a long period of time a to make more and more frozen assets available to satisfy judgments in fa- in fashions that are by the way, very unfair to other claimants. So there's gazillions of people who have claims against the Cuban government, uh, you know, based on dating back to 1959 for major compensation of all sorts of wrongs. And none of those judgments, none of those claims have been satisfied. And Congress in response to the push of these plaintiffs lawyers, jumped the brothers to the rescue, uh, pilots ahead of everybody else and satisfied their judgments out of frozen assets. So I'm, I'm talking about the behavior of law firms here. Um, moreover, Tamara is exactly right to then increase the number of countries to countries in which, um, that are possibly subject to this sovereign immunity waiver or the sovereign immunity exception, to countries in which there's no significant evidence of uh, you know, and in fact the US government has found to the contrary of active support um, of the acts in which uh the victims uh suffered, um and in which the assets are, by the way, not even frozen. So you could attach them by way of satisfying a judgment. That is a major, major escalation of, you know, what was already a very dicey set of propositions. And there's a reason why the executive branch under both Republican and Democratic administrations has so actively opposed these measures. And it's both that frozen assets are a major bargaining point in our relationships with these countries. When when we come to the table with Cuba, we will be, which we have now done, you know, we are less well off in those negotiations because we don't have access to those frozen assets anymore because they've been spent away. Um, and similarly, it has major international implications in our relationship with Saudi Arabia that we are now threatening to, um, you know, against the president's will to hold them liable in U.S. courts for things that their, their government in fact did not do. And, and I think that's, you know, that's a, um, you don't have to be, um, you know, a hard ass, uh, executive branch, uh, heartless, uh, screw the victims type, uh, like me. Uh, to say that, you know, that is a really undesirable, uh, state of affairs. And Congress has a lot to answer for, but I think we, we also really need to look at the pattern of the, at, at this relationship over time between, uh, Congress and what's really a set of interest groups that purport to represent victims, but actually have an enormous financial stake in, in in these suits.
3: So I don't disagree. I do think that one thing uh, that's sort of being raised in this particular context is a, a little bit of. Um uh, a more candid assessment of the U.S.-Saudi relationship. Um, and that includes sort of, right, a, a notion that this kind of frenemy thing where we're allies with Saudis, but with friends like these, right, this, this notion of, um, of the public being aware of an enormously complex relationship where it's not exactly clear uh, how deep, uh, how well aligned our interests are, uh, ultimately. Um, and so that that makes it, I think, difficult to give the kind of full-throated endorsement of, we want to protect this relationship. I think that a, a lot of people would respond, not understanding the much larger equities with, well, maybe that's not a relationship worth protecting. Um,
0: I think that's actually a really important point, because it's hard to imagine this legislation passing um, in earlier eras in which the U.S.-Saudi relationship was in better shape overall. And I think there are a couple of reasons why now um, is different for U.S.-Saudi relations and why members of Congress weren't willing to stand up for Saudi Arabia in this case. One is the war in Yemen. Um, that the Saudis launched this war barely notifying the United States but kind of pulling us into it because we resupply uh, and we ultimately decided that we would help them target to avoid uh, as many civilian casualties. But we're now implicated in this war that they can't figure out how to get out of. Uh, and there are broader tensions, um, around, uh, U.S.-Saudi relations and the, the path in, in the region. Um, but the other thing is Saudi sponsorship of, uh, a more extreme version of Islamic political thought in a lot of places around the world. And here's where I'm sympathetic to the 9-11 victims, but I also think that if they're angry, they should also be angry at the United States government because the U.S. government has, um, at at times in its history wielded that saudi influence on behalf of american foreign policy goals most notably in afghanistan prior to the takeover of the taliban and so you know you can't sort of have your cake and eat it too in foreign policy or actually you can, but um, but in this case, you know the victims are pointing up something that is a hypocrisy of American policy as much as it is a problem with Saudi foreign policy, and and so it seems to me they're focusing their ire on one target when really it could be a, a bit wider. And Congress is abetting that because they don't want that ire directed against the United States.
2: Okay, um, <clears throat> let's move on to our third segment. So uh, big week at the NSA. Few stories in the say. news. They had a big what do you uh, mean, employee cookout. No.
0: yeah, everything's great. All the secrets are safe.
2: They're fine. It's
0: fine. No, guys. that didn't happen. It didn't happen.
2: Yahoo wasn't asked to scan emails of all their incoming customers. No, probably we, not. Actually. We <laughs> 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 all right. Let's take there's Well, there's two stories just to catch people up. Uh, uh, one, Reuters reported that Yahoo was directed by. It's not clearly directed by the NSA or the FBI, but... It was given an edict. And given an edict. A, quote,
3: classified edict, and allegedly the NSA... Often, I think this is a quote. Often uses the FBI to obtain to to execute its domestic surveillance. Wow! So whenever the NSA wants domestic surveillance, which they don't do, they use the FBI to get it. They're so sneaky. It was, I learned a lot from that article <laughs> that, that I gonna, did not know. We'll
2: argue over the technical language of it, but there was there was this story, obviously in Reuters, about scanning emails of all incoming Yahoo. Uh, Customers for a particular character string, which Reuters reported, undefined, uh, undefined. What and 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 Reuters admitted does, girls, not, girls, does girls. not know what it was. <laughs> <laughs> girls, girls, girls. <laughs> <laughs> oh, geez. Uh, and then a story just uh, breaking this afternoon. We've and, gotten a lot of emails. <laughs> wow. That uh, the NS <laughs> that the NSA, uh, sorry, that the FBI is investigating a former or maybe current still, actually, maybe he's about to be a former NSA contractor, uh, who has been charged with, uh, uh, formerly charged with removing classified material from the agency. And there are some questions about whether this involved computer source code that is used in offensive NSA operations to gain access to foreign computer networks. So let, let's start with the Reuters story. And Ben, kind of give us the breakdown of this, but there's a lot in this story that raises more questions than answered is the diplomatic way to put it. But give us your take on what you're reading uh, in this Reuters exclusive.
1: Well, so first of all, I mean, I I guess there are three big uh, unclears in this story as a preliminary matter. First of all, unlike the Snowden revelations, it's not based on a document. So you can't go to the underlying source material and figure out – uh, exactly what the story, how the story is characterizing some objective reality. It's based on some anonymous sources. And, uh, so the first thing is. Which, we, to
2: be fair, so was the warrantless wiretapping story.
1: Look, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that's, that's inherently a bad thing. I'm saying it makes it very different from un- other NSA revelations where we've been able to go look at the underlying material right. and sort of form our own judgments. Here, uh, we have no underlying material. Um, Moreover, we, the descriptions in the story of what the underlying activity is are quite variable. So sometimes it seems to be that there's, uh, they're searching all incoming data in transit to the email system. Sometimes it seems to be that they're, uh, searching all email accounts, i.e. stored data. Uh, it's not at all clear exactly what they were asked to do that they agreed to do. Um, moreover, it is also not clear under what legal authority they were asked to do it or by whom, whether there was a FISA court order or a classified edict, exactly what the term of art classified edict means I'm not Sounds sure. Sounds like a
0: good name for a rock band, though.
1: Yeah. Classified edict is a good name for a band. Um, uh, along with extreme vetting. Um, and
2: <laughs> we're not at that segment yet. <laughs> um,
1: um, and so I am left with this in, in this story, uh, very unclear what was done or under what authority. The one thing that I think is very clear. Uh, is that uh, – and that's described with some precision – is the bureaucratic infighting within Yahoo over it, that this was an edict given to Marissa Myers, the CEO, and that she and the legal team decided to comply with it, that their chief uh, technology officer, your chief security officer, uh, then Alex Stamos, objected and resigned uh, and now works for Facebook – and this, I think, may give some window on the sourcing of the material, that it does really read to me like this is Stamos and his people, rather than, uh, it certainly isn't document-based. And so I'm left, uh, very unclear about what happened, uh, and very unclear about what the legal authority for it would have been. There are iterations of this story that I can spin out that would be very big deals. And I would read – I would look at it and say, wow, if that's happening, that's really news to me. And there are iterations of this story that I could say I'm uh, utterly unsurprised that this happened and uh, it's perfectly fine with me that this happened. So,
2: So would the category of holy shit, I'm surprised this happened be just so we're clear – Yahoo is told to scan the content of all incoming emails, regardless of, of origin or account holder, for a particular piece of content contained in the body of the email. Yes,
1: I would think if that if that was what's going on, first of all, I have no idea what the possible legal basis for such an order would be. Or Second, even how useful it would be. Se- secondly, I would, what you're ha- for. I would have constitutional questions about right. it, the validity of such an order – uh, I th- would think that would be a huge story. On the other hand, if what they mean by character string is that you're searching, uh, you know, data at rest in accounts for contact with a particular person, an email address, or uh, you know, then I would think, you know, that's a, looks like a classic 702 order, and it doesn't it doesn't particularly trouble me at all. And so I'm I'm. I'm just not, I'm not without knowing who demanded precisely what under what legal authority. I'm kind of at a loss to have an opinion about the thing.
3: That hasn't stopped a great many people from speculating wildly, which actually I think is a really notable element of this story, right? So it's basically a rumor. I mean, it's, it's a little bit more than a rumor. It's people that maybe were aware of some kind of, of technical, uh, underlying engineering and nothing more than that. Um, and so the range of sort of speculation that you've seen, it, very few people have stopped to say, hey, by the way, um, you can make certain, uh, you can fill in some blanks, but you can't fill in all the blanks when it's all blank right whenever you don't have legal authority you don't actually have a technical description and in fact you have an article that is showing either it's using terms of art in very casual ways or it actually doesn't understand what it's talking about right so the difference between searching an account versus searching uh incoming traffic it's this very sort of confused thing Uh, i would argue that that's not the kind of story that is worthwhile to put out to the public um if you uh if certainly if you got sort of a, a tip like that, wanting to substantiate it and, and see if you could um, develop that story, it, it might be uh, noteworthy. But I, I do think there's sort of a serious question about uh, clearly the reporter in that case was unable to substantiate it in any kind of way that would give people an understanding of anything beyond the fact that, Uh, Yahoo has some relationship with some part of law enforcement and or the intelligence community. Right. They couldn't even
1: figure out whether it was an FBI order or an NSA order.
3: Right. And I mean, this sort of, um, I think it it leads to a broader question as well. Um, And it sort of gets to what you were saying about, uh, you know, that it appears there was some sort of division between the security team and the management and legal team. Um, If a United States company... um, is served with an order that they believe to be legal, that they do not believe they could successfully challenge in court. Ordinarily, they comply with that order. And the sort of the outrage that that we've seen in response, how dare Yahoo comply with this order? And allegedly, this is um, this is why uh, uh, Alex Stamos resigned. I don't uh, I think there are a lot of reasons that one could speculate as to why someone would leave a failing company for a much more successful company. And I think we should note that just last week Stamos allegedly resigned because Yahoo hadn't changed the passwords after a mass hack. So he got he had a lot of reasons it's to complicated. resign. Apparently, it's very complicated. Um uh, and that is that this sort of um this sense that like there's a it's a moral imperative for a US company to what? Refuse to comply with government orders? Fight the man in every case? Th- that is something that I am legitimately struggling to come up with an answer for.
0: Yeah. You know, it's, it, I think you're raising sort of the cultural dimension as opposed to like the factual dimension of Only these because on- there is no
3: factual dimension. Right,
0: right. Well, this, this story, I think, highlights, um, the gap, though, because, you know, when Apple decided to contest that FBI order to, to help the FBI crack open the iPhone in the San Bernardino case, they got a lot of, like, libertarian uh, political points, basically. Um, and in the tech community, as we know, this sort of stick-it-to-the-man thing or don't-trust-it-anyone-over-30 thing is quite strong. And so, you know, there's a branding dimension here. Um, there's a cultural dimension, uh, including, you know, the love people are showing for Snowden, And there, and then there's a legal dimension and the confusion between the two in the public mind just seems to me, uh, really thorough. And that suggests that there's a role for journalists who do have enough expertise to make these distinctions and make these assessments and. Do you explanatory journalism. I'm. I'm not looking at anyone
3: in particular in this room. Hmm. No, it's
0: certainly no one who wrote a book on these subjects.
2: I'm not sitting here.
3: <laughs> but but it is but, noteworthy that that Yahoo uh, fought a set of orders in 2008 and was fined 250 thousand dollars a day for non-compliance before ultimately losing. Right. And, and it's also worth noting. And you did
0: note that Yahoo cannot seem to keep people's passwords secure and then finding out that they've been hacked, wait two years to let people know. So, you know, the, the competence of this company is certainly worth questioning. Although, can as well. I
3: offer my totally paranoid take on this? Please. Yahoo is up for sale. Right. Um, there are a lot of people that have a whole bunch of dollars on the line in terms of whether Yahoo's valuation comes in high or it comes in low. And, and there are people that, um, have very strong financial incentives on both. The fact that in the same intensive period of valuation, two major stories have come, have come out to sort of, um, call into question Yahoo's value. Uh, Surely that's a I'm coincidence. I'm totally suspicious that that is. <laughs> I, look, I think there's a there's at least a reasonable suspicion to say, hey, why now? Why is this stuff coming out now? What are the source of these leaks? And, and who potentially has an interest here? It's just, it's awfully convenient.
0: Yeah. And is Verizon going to walk away from this deal altogether?
2: Uh, alright, there's a much more substantive story about the NSA, Ben. Snowden 2, the sequel. Snowden Part 2. Snowed in. Ooh. No. Uh, no. No. Oh, okay. No. I didn't say that. Um, so it, this broke in this afternoon in the New York Times. We're doing some reporting on this in the Daily Beast today as well. Uh, but a uh, NSA contractor working for Booz Allen named Harold Martin, a retired Navy officer. Does he
1: have to be an NSA contractor working for Booz Allen? <laughs> yes, in this case he does. It, he <laughs> so does. Absolutely. It really
0: does raise question about Booz Allen's yeah. vetting.
2: You want to talk about a company that might be having some problems this week? Uh so uh, Harold Martin has been arrested. He was arrested in August, actually. We're just hearing about this now, and <clears throat> charged with two counts of uh, related to um, allegedly removing classified information from the NSA. It was found by investigators at his house in Maryland. It has been described both as as hard copy documents and possibly electronic files, but essentially what it's been reported to be, it's not in the charging documents, uh, is um, computer code that is used in offensive cyber operations. Um, uh, We can talk about this because we'll be reporting it by the time it comes out, Uh, but he was working in a highly uh, skilled group of computer hackers within the NSA, Uh, was enrolled in a PhD program in computer science at a college in Maryland, we've confirmed. Uh, We don't know a lot more than that, but it seems to me that this is Going to raise immediately questions of a whether this is an espionage case, of course. B was he planning to leak information to the press? Um, this coincides with reports of uh, or report statements by a hacker group, self-professed hacker group called Shadow Brokers, which claims to have obtained some NSA code that sounds a lot like what he's suspected of having. But it's not clear whether or not this man was the source for that. Um, but. Boy, this is going to raise a lot of questions about NSA's ability to detect insider threats uh, and people within its midst who would you know, potentially do great damage to the agency. Um, dive in, kids. We
1: happen to have a former lawyer from the agency right here
3: indeed, I I leave and the place just goes to hell. Yeah, <laughs> you, uh, what, you were the glue. Hole wouldn't to happen on before. your watch. Exactly. What uh, should look, we make of this? Once again, there's not enough information to draw any kind of Guess conclusions what? here, right? Like, let's <laughs> just make something up, right? It, it it's. Could be espionage, sure. He could be a foreign agent, run, you know, raised from a little tiny infant in a cabbage patch up to be sort of a he could a be a cozy yourself. bear or a four hundred pound man on a bed. Well, right? We well, can weigh him
1: and find out the latter.
3: <laughs> um, you know, so it's a, right. So we're still like in in that very early stage, and, and people just don't know. Um, I, I do think it raises um, on any set of facts, it, it raises um, significant questions about sort of this insider threat thing. Um, And that's something that uh, has been uh, sort of an intense focus within the intelligence community, actually, since sort of the original Chelsea Manning WikiLeaks stuff clearly was um, a major sort of source of concern post-Snowden. It's really been something that the intelligence community has grappled with a lot. Um, So the president signed an executive order, 13587, which is sort of... um, among other things, uh, directs everybody, every agency to stand up um, insider threat uh, programs. And they've created a task force, at the NCSC, um, and and they've really thought a lot about this. Um, The thing about uh, sort of uh, preventing insider threats is that um, you can do a lot to ensure that – People don't get access to things they aren't supposed to be getting access to, right? So you can detect anomalous behavior and you can kind of, um, uh, there's all sorts of, uh, of programs you, you might employ for that. Um, and you can do a lot to um, ensure that somebody is who they say they are, right? So the person who's walking into the building with that cat card, with that badge, really is the person, right? So so biometrics and security and, right? Um, and you can vet people's backgrounds, right? Right. Um, the problem is, is that um, at the end of the day, you have to trust a human being to actually see that information. And the one thing it's really, really hard to defend against is a person who is entitled to see particular information misusing it, right? Like there's just, there is an element of trust that is just necessary. So to date, a lot of that sort of um, uh, Trust has been verified through this clearance process, right? That like, that's, that's what shows that you're trustworthy. You have a TS clearance or you have access to, you know, whatever the SAP is or whatever um, sort of program you're working on. Um, you know, that's, I, I think this does raise real questions about whether or not the clearance process is screening for the right attributes, um, whether or not they need to be thinking about different things, like the ability to empathize with co-workers, the kind of um, social skills and traits that might be um, stronger indicators. Um, and then, you know, the, the other sort of element that people uh, overlook but actually is a long-term insider threat detection is um the worst part about being in the intelligence community. The parking is the worst part. The second worst part about being in the intelligence community. No, the pay is the second worst part. The third worst <laughs> part about being in the intelligence community is your financial disclosure form. It, they call it the financial colonoscopy. Every year, you have to account for every dime. I mean, everything it's unbelievable in these very elaborate disclosures and it's to ensure that nobody came up with a hundred thousand dollar car that they don't have an explanation for Um, but I, I think the sort of the dirty secret of all of this and then like all the insider threat programs is there's actually no way to defend against an insider threat because you have to trust people and sometimes people are Bad or blackmailed or make a mistake or lazy or whatever else there might be.
1: I just want to say that insider threat is a good name for a band.
3: I think we have a theme. Oh my <laughs> the pressure is
0: on
2: for our band name. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think this is why we should have robots do all our coding from now on because we yeah. can only really mm-hmm. trust mm-hmm. the machines. Mm-hmm. I think
2: that's probably true. That's fair. Um, let's move on to object lessons, yeah. Who would like to go first?
0: Well, I, I have an object. It's small. It's obsolete. Um, it's very old. And, uh, and it is a tangible memory of a couple of hours that I spent in the company of, uh, someone who was very old and considered by many of his fellow countrymen to be obsolete, but who, uh, after a long and varied and Distinguished Life, passed away last week at the age of 93. I'm speaking, of course, about Israeli President Shimon Peres. Um, Shimon Peres uh, is a study in contradictions in many ways. And after an early career in which he was uh, a leading figure in building up the Israel Defense Forces and Israel's nuclear deterrent, um, by many reports, uh, he became a convert to the cause of peace. With the Palestinians, uh, Israeli recognition of the PLO is a result of secret diplomacy that he authorized and oversaw that ultimately resulted in the Oslo Declaration of Principles and the Oslo process that followed. And even though he never, uh, brought the effort all the way home to a final peace accord, he remained a true believer, uh, in the cause throughout his, um, his later years and spoke about it often. Uh, in fact, I think in many ways, he was probably the last Israeli political leader to wholeheartedly believe in the two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And with his passing, it's not clear that there's anyone else in the Israeli political scene who's going to pick up that torch and keep carrying it forward. Um, I, when I was a young graduate student and uh, went off to uh, Israel to do my dissertation research, I interviewed a wide range of Israelis and Palestinians uh, about the early Oslo process. And uh, and I, after a lot of effort working through secretaries and intermediaries and so on, secured an appointment with Shimon Peres, who was then uh, out of power and sitting in a law office in, in the center of Tel Aviv. And I showed up for the interview on the wrong day, <laughs> um, a week early, as it turned out. And so I showed up in the office and no one knew what to do with me. And Perez said, oh, that's OK. Come on in and we'll talk as long as I can talk until my next phone call comes in. I ended up sitting there for about an hour back and forth with him. In between, he took some phone that's calls. Amazing. And uh, and then he told me at the end of our session to come back the next week when my actual appointment was so we could continue the conversation. Uh and you know, for a starry-eyed grad student this was an amazing amount of time to spend with who someone who is already a senior statesman and a Nobel Prize laureate. Um I have uh in a box with a bunch of other dusty micro cassettes <laughs> um two micro cassettes of my uh, of my interviews with Shimon Perez and I I know I need to di- digitize them but the funny thing is when I came back from my field research and sat down to transcribe them the pitch of his voice is famously low almost kissinger like in its depth and uh and with a thick polish accent and so it was actually incredibly difficult to understand <laughs> him on these microcassettes in fact I'm impressed that this ancient microcassette recorder picked up his voice at all um, and so I I have these two microcassettes and I am trying to figure out whether it's worth doing anything with them other than perhaps putting them in a frame and sending them off to a library.
2: <laughs> Get them transcribed.
0: Yeah. that Make was... it
2: someone else's problem.
0: Yeah. Someone else with really good ears.
2: Yeah. Maybe who's, who has, you know, Polish ancestry. It <laughs> Could be. Maybe like listening to their grandfather. Um, thank you. That was a beautiful story. That's great. Um, Okay, so my object this week is a new book that I'm just diving into The New Nobility The Restoration of Russia's Security State and the Enduring Legacy of the KGB. So I'm on a hunt, I'm gonna ask listeners help for this for who is it by? Yeah, it is by Andrei Soldatov and Irina Borogan, if I'm saying that correctly. It sounds Russian when I say it. Soldatov means soldier. Yeah, well, uh-huh. Mr. Soldier with apparently I think uh, Irina Borogan is his wife. And anyway, they've uh two journalists um who are are actually credited with being some of the leading reporters on the intelligence surface uh and in, in services in Russia. Um how they're still alive, I'm not entirely sure, but they run the website uh, agentura.ru, which some readers may readers may be familiar with. Uh but I am on a mission. I want to ask readers for this for your best recommendations on books about russia and specifically the russian security services because it is just it is a hall of mirrors and i want to chase a rabbit right into it so tweet at us let me know what your favorite books on this subject are but uh yeah i'm starting here i'm diving in yeah awesome. david yeah. hoffman david uh, hoffman of course david you know, hoffman is next on this the, list the, the uh, yeah. million dollar billion dollar, dollar, dollar spy, billion spy yeah.
1: is is a fabulous yeah. fabulous
2: book yeah okay any other objects Well, that brings us to the end of the show. Is that possible? It's possible. It's not the end of the show.
0: It's just the end of the episode. It's the end of the episode. We'll be back next week. I don't know what you're
2: talking I'm about. not reading the credits. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find our show archive at spaghettionthewallproductions.com. Of course, you can follow us on Twitter at RATLsecurity. Make sure to send us your questions, your recommendations, etc. We really appreciate it. Whenever you download the podcast from your iTunes or Stitcher or your favorite podcatcher, please remember to leave that five-star rating and uh, a review of how you think we're doing. It really helps us out. We appreciate it. Our audio engineer is Quentin Jurassic. The music was performed this week by Mike Pence and the Jastastics.
0: Oh, that's so Jetsons. I yeah, love it. That, it's also
2: like Gemini and the Holograms. Mm-hmm. Jastastics. Or like Jazzercise. The Jastastics. I like that. If we have a band, it's definitely going to be called the Jastastics and not any of the other awesome names that Ben did not come up with. <laughs> <laughs> on this episode. <laughs> Sorry, Ben. Um, no, really, shout out to Sophia Yan for always providing our wonderful music. She is jazz and we appreciate her. Uh, the podcast is edited and produced by Jen Howell. On behalf of my friends, Tamara Kaufman-Wittes, Ben Wittes, and Susan Hennessy. we'll see you next week. Bye. Hold
3: up!